Hey, Seacoast, I wanted to give you a heads up as to what's going on this weekend. I'm not where you are. I am speaking at Healing Place Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and uh, doing a little red fishing too, which should be great. Uh, but I wanted to tell you what's going on. I wanted to introduce you to our speaker. His name's Jack Hoy. Uh, some of you know Jack. Uh, most of you probably don't. Let me give you a little background on Jack. Jack uh, has degrees in finance and uh, also in economics. Uh, Jack was an executive with a major multinational uh, company and then a few years ago moved here to Charleston and uh, started his own business which grew into a significant company here in the southeast. Uh, Jack also uh, has been a political advisor to uh, some of the top level uh, people in our government here in South Carolina and uh, he knows ministry. In fact, he's all about ministry. Uh, Jack serves on the board of a major homeless uh, organization here in Charleston and uh, then he also gives leadership uh, to one of the largest missions organizations in the world, Pioneers, which was founded by his family. Um, but more than that, for me, Jack is my friend. Uh, he and I have been meeting in a small group together um, at my house for several years. And as we were talking about the trending uh, series, I said, Jack, I want you to talk to us on this particular issue. And so I'm excited. Uh, to have a man um, that kind of has the broad background Jack has, but a man that loves God, knows God, and tries to put Jesus first in his life and in his finances and in his business. So would you welcome with me today, uh, Jack Hoy. Give a big Seacoast welcome. Thank you. It's, it's good to be here with you today. And I also want to welcome everyone who's joining us in one of the other venues here at Long Point, one of our 14 campuses, or on the Internet. We're glad that you're worshiping with us today. And I particularly want to welcome the folks at Seacoast Greenville. Our Greenville campus recently moved to a new location. We think it's going to be a great location for them as they go forward into the future. Ross White is our campus pastor there. And Ross, I know how hard you and your team have been working. You're doing a great job. And uh, we're really looking forward to what God's going to do through you in the months ahead. By the way, I, I have my obligatory iPad. <laughs> I didn't realize it was obligatory, but they said, Jack, you're doing the weekend message, you have to use an iPad. Well, you know, I mean, we all know how Greg loves his iPad. You never see him without it. And all the young guys around here, they just run around doing whatever they see Greg doing, you know. <laughs> Which I completely understand. Um, so, fine, I, you know, no reason to make an issue of it. But, you know, I want to say that it, I've really found it useful. It was a great place to keep my notes. <laughs> and all you need is a binder clip, and it's a really good little clipboard as well. So, thanks, guys, for nudging me out of my comfort zone. It's really changing my life. So, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series of messages called Trending. We've been talking about some of the big issues, things we all have questions about. And today our topic is economics. Now, there's a tagline that goes along with economics that explains a lot. And when I say tagline, uh, Chicago is the windy city, right? Dogs are man's best friend although I have to say my information on that one is secondhand. Economics is, anybody know? Boring, well. 
It's worse than that. Economics is the dismal science. And the reason is that the study of economics is about how we allocate scarce resources. In other words, there is never enough for everyone to get all the things that they want. And economics is the study of how we determine who gets what. So it's depressing and it's contentious. I think you'd agree with me too that allocating scarce resources has some relevance to the times that we're in right now. Now you may wonder, why are we talking about this in church? When we get distracted by social issues, don't we take our focus off the gospel? I mean, what difference does economics make in comparison with whether my neighbor spends eternity in heaven or in hell? But I wonder if the gospel is broader than we sometimes think. The best-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Apostle John also wrote some letters later in life to some churches that he oversaw, and we know these letters as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Let me read to you 1st John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Seems pretty consistent so far. But look at what he says next. These verses are in your outline sheet. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, we know that the gospel isn't just about what Jesus did. It's also about our response. But we usually think of that response in terms of belief, not in terms of laying down our lives. That sounds radical, doesn't it? When I look at my life, I'm not sure that's what I see. Now look how John explains what it means to, del- to lay down our lives. Verses 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now it seems to me that when we think about sharing with people in need, we think in terms of charity. And that word sounds good and kind and optional. But John is saying that if my neighbor is hungry, then meeting her need is not an option. It's an obligation if I'm a a follower of Jesus Christ. If God lives within us, we will be unconditionally generous to people in need. And if we're not, John is saying, then God must not live within us. Jesus began his public ministry in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. One Sabbath day, he opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, turned to, turned to, unrolled to Isaiah 61, which is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the Savior that the Jewish people have been waiting for for centuries. He read it, he sat down and said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one that Isaiah was speaking about. Here's something else Isaiah says about the Messiah. This is from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. Jesus began his public ministry 
with this announcement. So it was central to how he saw his purpose. Jesus came to establish justice on earth. Now, justice doesn't sound optional, does it? What does justice mean? The right to a fair trial? Yes, but so much more than that. In biblical terms, justice means putting everything right. I've been reading through the books of the Old Testament prophets in my quiet times in recent weeks, and the strongest theme running through this part of the Bible is God's desire for justice and his anger at those who withhold it. And most often, it's talking about economic justice. I was reading in Zechariah 7 this morning, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what they say. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. What does true justice mean? Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Again and again, God identifies himself with the most vulnerable members of the community. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Do we oppress the poor? Now, if you're anything like me, I'm sure your immediate reaction is, no, of course I don't. But do we live in a society where the poor are sometimes oppressed? I think we have to say, yes, we do. Do powerful people or powerful institutions sometimes take advantage of others? Is our system ever unjust? All of us know from our experience that that's true. And if we've experienced injustice, don't you think that the weight of injustice falls far more heavily on the most vulnerable members, on our most vulnerable neighbors? Now, this isn't a simple issue. What about the rich? Are they the oppressors? A few, but not many. Most people who are rich got there because they've worked hard to provide what other people want, and they've been rewarded for doing it well. Their wealth was created, not taken from someone else. And let me say, too, I admire our country. We've set high ideals in front of us, and we've kept them consistently in front of us. Now, we've fallen short of those ideals at times, sometimes grievously, but we've worked to correct the failings that we see. While We haven't lived up to our ideals. They're shaping us. That's a rare thing in human history, and it's something that we can be proud of. But this brings us to the role that we should play as Christians in matters of economic justice. And here there's wide disagreement. Most Christians who identify themselves as economic conservatives argue that involvement should be voluntary and personal. And let me just say, I'm going to use the terms liberal and conservative, and I realize that Those are words that are loaded with meaning for some of us. If I could think of less loaded words, I would use them. I also realize that I'm implying that there are just two polar extremes when actually there's a whole continuum of viewpoints and people at all different points on that continuum. But what I want to try to do is just frame the kinds of issues that we're facing when we talk about economic issues. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that giving should not be compelled, that whatever we give should be given voluntarily. The idea that governments should tax some people and give that money to others isn't found anywhere in the New Testament. And Jesus never advocated that the government act to alleviate poverty. But it's never wise to argue from silence. Jesus never condemned slavery either. But slavery has been abolished in the Western world precisely because Jesus' followers took seriously his teachings that all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it has to be wrong to enslave your brother or your sister. We also need to remember that Jesus' teachings were immersed in Old Testament principles. And he taught in a culture that was shaped by those principles. The Old Testament has a lot to say about our responsibilities as citizens and the responsibilities of political leaders to act justly in meeting the needs of the poor. So, God's politics. Liberal? Conservative? What do you think? I mean, just framing the issue that way sounds silly, but I suspect that a lot of us think he kind of leans one way or the other, don't we? As I understand the scripture, I think both liberals and conservatives capture something important and vital in their thinking. But but both sides are also missing something. Living justly is not simple or easy. As an example, here's a policy issue that the president and the Congress are currently debating, whether to extend the maximum eligibility for unemployment benefits from 99 weeks to 114 weeks. What do many conservatives say? Studies confirm the common sense view that when we extend unemployment benefits, it reduces the motivation to go find work. Some people will remain longer, will remain idle longer if the benefits are there. And we've already extended benefits far beyond anything we've ever done before. That's all true. But it's not the whole picture, is it? We all know what this downturn has done to the construction industry. Do you think that carpenters might have trouble finding work? Do you think there are some unemployed men and women out there who are desperately trying to put food in the table for whom these benefits are a lifeline? It was reported this week that 22% of American children live in poverty right now. That's the highest percentage in 30 years. What about them? The problem is that it's inefficient to reach them. We can't help those who need it without also helping those who don't. And here's where conservatives often have a blind spot. If a proposal is inefficient in economic terms, discussion ended. Why would we want to waste resources? Well, what if there's something important to be done and there's no efficient way to do it, no way to do it without some waste? Think about what it's like to feed a six-month-old child. That's when they're first starting to sit up, they're just starting to eat solid food. Although, just a question I have. We feed pureed, unsalted vegetables to small, defenseless creatures (laughs) that we are supposed to love. We, we, We think that babies cry because they're hungry, but I wonder if they cry because they're thinking about what's for dinner. But anyway, feeding a six-month-old child, not a very efficient process, is it? Right, you end up with food all over their face and down their neck and just dripping off their bib. My daughter used to have food on the back of her neck. How did she even do that? 
we, we got to where we just took her top off before we fed her. It was just easier to clean her up afterwards. Not an efficient process, is it? But the fact that you're here, I'm guessing, means that somebody fed you when you were six months old. Fairly important process, isn't it? We do feed babies. Efficiency isn't always the most important thing. The Bible says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Not very efficient water management, maybe, but that's what he does. But liberals have a blind spot, too. Their arguments sometimes imply that the effectiveness of a solution shouldn't be part of the decision at all. How can we pinch pennies when people are in need? We have to do something. The Bible teaches radical generosity, but it also teaches that wise management is important. If we have a certain amount of money to help people in need, shouldn't we use it where it's going to do the most good? Paul says something fascinating in Philippians 1. He's writing to a group of generous people. In fact, he refers to the generosity of this church in his letters to the Corinthians. He says, This is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. We don't usually think of love as having anything to do with knowledge, do we? What's what's this mean? Active love that seeks to help another person must be wise. Otherwise, it's unlikely to help at all. It may even do harm. If you study the history of government poverty programs, you'll see many case studies of how to make a bad situation worse. That's not to say that the government shouldn't fight poverty, but that we need to learn from our mistakes. And if we don't care about that, then we're not acting in love. So do you see how there are two sides to this issue? Both sides involve trade-offs. And I can see how godly women and men who are deeply concerned about justice and about helping people in need could decide either way. And if that's true, isn't it wrong to attack the motives or the character of people who disagree with us on these issues? to assume that justice is all on our side, that the problem with those conservatives is that they're just uncaring and hard-hearted, the problem with those liberals is they just won't face facts. Now, let me say, too, I'm not advocating compromise. I don't see how splitting the difference between two inadequate perspectives leads to a good solution. In my experience, the best solutions, the lasting solutions come when all sides to an issue genuinely seek to understand the perspectives of the people they're talking with. If you think about it, all of us have needs, objectives, wants. Think about that as a map that's, that's kind of bounded by our values. You have two people trying to agree on something. What they're really trying to do, if they're going to have a successful agreement, is figure out where the overlap is in their two maps. That's the place where both sides are able to go forward together, where they can both achieve what they're seeking to achieve. Now, here's the deal. Our maps are personal things. 
We don't share them with anybody, much less people who are spitting in their eye, spitting in our eye. We share them with people we trust. We share them with people who are listening, who are genuinely trying to understand where we're coming from. Paul teaches in Romans that others' interests are to be just as important to us as our own. When we show that and people trust us enough to be honest with us, we have the opportunity to create solutions that can actually make things better. Because see, if I don't know where your map is, I have no chance at finding that area of overlap. Now, this all sounds kind of naive, doesn't it? And I have to say it's not always possible. But it's what we should be striving for, for, for a society where every voice is heard and valued. And as we seek to be heard, our voices need to reflect humility because we don't have all the answers. And they need to reflect love because that's why we're involved in the first place. Now, I'm glad that there are Christians on both sides of these issues. But I can't say that their voices always reflect humility and love. Honestly, I can't say that mine do. How about yours? It's tough to make a difference in a large community, much less on a national level. Some of us are called to that. Some of us aren't. But when we get frustrated by things we can't control, it can distract us from the things that we can do. It lets us rationalize keeping our lives in our own hands rather than laying them down for our brothers and sisters. Tolstoy wrote, Everybody thinks of changing humanity, but nobody thinks of changing himself. So, let's change gears and talk about how this applies to the way we live our lives. How do we honor God with our resources? I want to start with a question that may seem off track. Are you content with what you have? Not many people are regardless of how much they have. We always want more. When we don't have much, the things we want are basic, but when those needs are met, there's always something else we want that we don't have. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And Paul, in a letter to Timothy, says that being rich doesn't depend on how much money you have, but on how content you are. I've learned that I'm more content when I maintain a perspective and how much I actually have. Here's a verse that has haunted me. Proverbs 21:13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be heard. Now, I live in a nice, safe, suburban neighborhood. In the course of a normal day, I never come into contact with a poor person. What does it mean for me to shut my ears to the cry of the poor if I'm never in a place where I can hear the poor at all? I've concluded that what it means is that I need to go where they live. Have you ever known a friend or maybe a teenager who's gone on a short-term missions trip? Didn't it change their perspective on possessions? But the impact fades over time. That first week, it's all they can talk about. Six months later, it's... An afterthought. It's, it's just another memory. So what if you went on a missions trip a couple times a month? Do you think that might help you maintain your perspective on how much you have? Many of you from the Charleston area serve at the Dream Center in North Charleston, providing food, clothing, 
medical and dental services, mentoring teenagers. May the Lord reward you for what you're doing. We have a a team at our West Ashley campus that serves meals regularly at Crisis Ministries, the big homeless shelter downtown. I've served on the board there for many years, and I can tell you, you guys are legends down there. How about you? Do you spend any time serving people who lack what you have? How do we honor God with our resources? For the first dozen years of our marriage, my wife Penny and I bounced around the country with a big company. When we were in our late 20s, we moved to Boulder, Colorado. And the pastor of the church that we attended there had a real heart for the poor. In fact, a couple of years later, he left that church to uh, go lead a 13-member church in Denver's inner city. This was the first time that we really wrestled with these questions of economic justice and, and what generosity looked like. One night we were talking about this, and Penny said something like, why should we spend any more on ourselves than we're spending now? We really have everything we need. Well, that was a starting point for a lot of discussion. But, you know, we thought about that, we prayed about it, and decided that was what God wanted us to do. So when we budgeted that year, we kept our spending the same, and we gave away the increase. Within three years, we had doubled our giving, and that was good. But I think the most important thing that we learned was that there didn't need to be a connection between what we earned and what we spent. We kind of assume that connection in our culture. You earn this much, you spend this much, hopefully not this much. But when your earnings increase, your spending automatically ratchets up. We just assume that that's the way it should be. If you have unmet needs, of course, that makes sense. But what if all your needs are met? Now, there can be good reasons to spend more money at different times of life. For us over the years, there have been some. The next time we moved, we came to an area where there was a real difference in school systems. We wanted our kids to be in good schools. So we had to spend more on a house. That was okay. But my point is that it permanently changed the equation for us. We wanted to use all of our money in a way that honored God. And that moved the question beyond what will we give to include what should we keep? Now, one caution. We need to be careful not to elevate our preferences into a scriptural principle. I hate waste. And I have a child who loves to have the whole house lit up, even after she's gone out for the evening. So one night recently, I was kind of following along behind her, turning lights off and, you know, grumbling. And um, I remembered a line from the Christmas carol. Uh, Scrooge was walking up the steps in his house, and there's no lights in the steps because who needs it? And uh, he was carrying a candle, but it wasn't doing much to cut the darkness. And Dickens writes, but Scrooge cared not a button for that. Darkness was cheap, and Scrooge liked it. Yeah, so Jesus talks about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? But I'm not sure that's the kind of righteousness, a Scrooge-like righteousness. That's kind of a contradiction in terms, right? So be careful on applying your standards to others. Just focus on what God is saying to you. These principles don't just apply in our homes. We should honor God in the marketplace, too. I owned a business here in Charleston for about 15 years. And I remember when I was buying the company, one verse really stuck out in my mind. Matthew 24, verses 45 and 46. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. 
I thought, okay, I'm responsible before God to give food to these people. What does, what does give food look like? How do I lead in a way that honors God? One issue we had was that we hired a lot of unskilled labor. Our wages were competitive, but wages for unskilled labor are low. So we set goals for increasing pay. I wanted everybody to be able to earn a living wage, and I wanted everybody to have the opportunity to earn a good income. And over time, we got there. We had a lot of young dads and moms in our company, so health insurance was important. And as the years went on, I started to realize that if people are giving a chunk of their lives to our company, we need to have a way to help them save for retirement. Now, some of you are in industries where the economics really limit what you're able to do. Do what you can. God isn't asking you to do anything that you're not able to do. Some of you are in industries where the economics permit more than that. Again, I would say do what you can to enable your associates to provide good lives for their families. I'm probably sounding naive again. Hey, this is really nice stuff to talk about in church, but I live in the real world. I was once talking with a group of uh, business people and um, we were talking about integrity. And one of the guys said, you just don't understand. Everybody lies in my business. Well, there are businesses like that, aren't there? How easy it must be to stand out in a business like that. I know that I am always, when I find a tradesperson or a company or a, or a repair shop that I can trust, they get my business because that's a rare quality. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Now, we sometimes interpret that as a test of the ethical quality of our actions. In other words, let's see, am I doing the right thing? Well, let's see, how would I feel if somebody treated me that way. And that's a true interpretation, but it's incomplete. Because see, sometimes we add on to this that Jesus is really saying, here's a completely unrealistic standard. And if you take a shot in the dark and actually do this, you have to hope that I do a miracle to bail you out. That is not what he's saying. That's the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying, I created all things. And here's how they work. Here's the design. And when you live in accordance with the design, it is a far more powerful and effective way to live than any other way. Paul writes in Romans 8 that the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And when we live in obedience, we reveal them. We reveal the children of God to people who have been yearning for that. Seeing God work in a person's life, seeing what real love looks like, that's the deepest desire of every heart. And the truth is, we don't shy away from this because it doesn't work. We shy away from it because it's hard. And because we don't really believe that it's better to give than to receive. One challenge for me with this message is that I'm not trying to hold myself up as an example and say, here's what radical generosity looks like. I've never felt that I'm a generous person. I'm a skeptical person. And I'm cautious. My first impulse isn't to give, it's to wonder whether I really need to give and whether I can afford it. I was talking to a couple that goes to our church last week, and the woman was sharing how when she was a new Christian, she learned about tithing, and she immediately began to give 10% of her income that day. Never looked back. And the context of all this was to talk about how as, as she and her husband have gone further down this path of generosity, God has blessed them as a result. Some of you are recklessly generous, and I admire that. 
And God loves you. Some of you are more like me. But I've come to realize that he loves us too. He's the one who wired, it that, wired us that way, isn't, it? isn't he? Both reckless and cautious. We complement each other. You get us off the couch, we keep you out of the ditch. <laughs> Greg shared a few weeks ago that the average American Christian gives about 3% of his or her income. Now, if you're on the cautious side and your giving is somewhere around that average, beginning to tithe, giving away 10% of your income, looks like jumping off a financial cliff. So let me suggest something. Paul says in Romans 12, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Give in accordance with your faith. If your income is $100 and you're giving $3, 3%, what can you trust God for? Does your faith enable you to give 350 Good. Take that step. And then prayerfully consider whether God would have you take a further step. As you take steps of faith, you build your faith. And you also build your ability to manage money skillfully. God wants all of us to be generous. But he knows that we get there by different paths. And of course, money isn't the only thing we have to give. I do management consulting, and, and in my business, you bill your time by the hour. So the saying, time is money, literally is true in that kind of a business. It's good for me to give away some of my time and my talent. Have you ever thought in terms of tithing your time? Now, please, this is not a, does that mean I have to give four hours a week? What if I work overtime? Do I have to give more? The question is just, are you regularly spending time serving others or serving in the church? The prophet Hosea wrote these words. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness upon you. Every one of us has unplowed ground in our lives. Some part of us that we've never allowed God to put into productive use. Break up your unplowed ground. What does that mean for you? Does it mean spending time in poor neighborhoods or at the Dream Center and meeting some of the needs that you see there? Does it mean managing your money so that you can give more of it away? Or is your time the most valuable thing you can offer? If you're looking for ideas, introduce yourself to the outreach coordinator at your campus. They'll be glad to plug you in. Many of you are in small groups. You should talk about these things. You may decide as a group to go on mission together. Some of the most exciting work being done at Seacoast right now is being done by groups that have turned themselves into missional communities. Other groups are more like groups of missionaries. They don't serve together, but they encourage each other to be missional, to make the most of what God has given them. When Penny and I had young children, we tended to be part of groups made up of other young families. That's natural. We didn't necessarily have the same gifts or the same calling, but we could encourage and challenge each other to serve God generously. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and faithfulness and love to us. We thank you that in the midst of all the difficulties that our nation is going through right now, that many of us as individuals are going through, that you are an ever-present God, that you love your children, and your desire is that we walk in obedience and faith with you. Help us as we look at these matters of economics, our involvement with issues 
our personal generosity. Help us to walk in the path that you mark out for us, Lord. Guide our steps and enable us to be faithful to you. In Christ's name, amen.